Hi everyone, welcome to the Life Around the Table podcast. Here you can expect to find teachings, interviews, devotions, and other discussions about faith, life, culture, and the church. If there is any way we can serve you or answer any questions that you might have about our church, feel free to reach out at hello at thetablechurch.us. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. Hey everyone, I hope you are doing well. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor of teaching and discipleship for the Table Community Church here in the Gallatin Valley, and thank you so much for tuning in. As always, glad you are with us, even digitally or virtually or however it is we are doing this, but I hope you're doing well this week. Um, the smoke here in Belgrade from the fire seems to be easing up a little bit, and the weather's been great, and God is really up to some unique and cool things around the table that I cannot wait to share with you over the next few days. We are finally narrowing in on what we feel like God is leading us to do as a church as we're navigating COVID, and so really excited about the, some of the things that our leadership team has come up with and cannot wait to tell you. But for now, that's just a little bit of a teaser, so just be be on the lookout for some updates over the next week or so and um, as we move forward. So let's go ahead and continue our journey into some of the parables of Jesus that teach us about the life in the kingdom and what life looks like as we follow Jesus. And so as we've been talking about, parables have a way of frustrating our natural inclinations towards things and then freeing us towards a, a better way, the Jesus way, I should say. And so today we're going to see a little bit of frustration with our inclination towards immediate results in life. And then we're going to see us freed up to think more widely about what it looks like to live in difficult times with prayer and patience and endurance. And so with that in mind, let's jump on over to Luke 18, 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. I am going to be reading out of the New International Version. If you want to flip on that version on your phone... Okay, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come, at, come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. We thank you that you are good even when things are not. We thank you that you are ever present with us by your Spirit. And Father, as we walk through this parable, we ask that you would make us more like Jesus, more today than we were yesterday, and more tomorrow than we are today. We thank you for the treasure that is your Word. Help us treat it as such, and help us live by it, by the power of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week, an actor by the name of Chadwick Boseman passed away from colon cancer at the age of 43. And I'm sure you've seen this on the news. If not, I'm sure you will. But he was a really young guy and an incredible actor, up-and-coming actor, actually, who has done some very good films. You know, two of my favorite films that he has done was Jackie Robinson. He played Jackie Robinson in the movie 42. And then he played King T'Challa, who's also the Black Panther, in the Marvel film Black Panther and the Avengers. And so all of which are just excellent movies. I really enjoyed them. 
you know, interestingly, you know, he did play Jackie Robinson. He passed away on the day that Major League Baseball was celebrating Jackie Robinson. And from the videos that I watch, he he seems to be an incredible guy. He he seems to be a follower of Jesus. Um, he's given some commencement speeches where he talks about faith and. He just seems to be a very good and kind guy, very talented actor. Now, something remarkable about his journey was how much of a shock the news of his death was to fans, because very few people seems to have known, seem to have known about his battle that he was fighting. I think he was diagnosed in 2016, and so the movies he has done since then, in which he played lead roles, were done while he was fighting cancer and having surgeries and undergoing treatments. And unless you knew, you would have never had guessed that he was fighting cancer. And so with Boseman, there was this deep sense of commitment and endurance the whole time about him. While days were dark and difficult, he pressed through. You know, he would get in front of a camera after surgery or chemotherapy or whatever the case. But he, he displayed this sense of endurance and commitment that I think many of us really respect. And it seems like he was far too young to pass away from colon cancer, and it's just kind of—it is—it's just a tragedy. But there's something about that endurance and commitment that really resonates with us. All of us know people who have that sort of posture towards life, even in the midst of difficulty. This intense devotion and endurance that sees them through, and that's an important quality. And this parable is about that. It's about that deep endurance with faithfulness when everything else in life makes us want to give in, and as we would say here, throw in the towel when it comes to difficulty. In fact, we don't have to wander around the text too long to uncover the meaning of this text. As Luke tells us up front in the very first verse, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. It's simple enough to understand, but not all that easy to integrate into our lives. We have to, as we deal with all of the parables, dig a little bit deeper and really uncover the nature of commitment and endurance. And so let's walk through this and then figure out how we might be able to respond. You see, the parable is about this unjust judge, and he's an indifferent judge who, the text says, neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. Now, a clearer reading might be he didn't really believe in God, and he certainly didn't care about people. And so that's how we ought to think about this judge. We don't know much about judges from within this context, except that a singular judge might be over a small town, as most cities seems to have had, seems to have had a plurality of judges. Now, whatever the case, his job is simply that to him. It's just a job that's meant to prop up his own ego, his own power, and his own purposes. He's not interested in God, not interested in others. He's only about himself. And so the judge is selfish, doesn't like to be interrupted on his day off. He doesn't want to take the time to listen to someone who is on the opposite end of the social spectrum, this, this poor, helpless widow. He's more concerned with his paycheck than he is for those who have none. And he seems to only dish out justice when it's an inconvenience to him and not out of compassion for others. It's only when he's deeply inconvenienced when he dishes out the justice for the widow. And so that's a little bit about this judge. And, you know, I think that when we think about the posture of this judge, it's really easy to criticize. But again, parables are meant to make us reflect about our own way of life. And so don't just dismiss the character of the judge. Reflect on it a little bit and ask, is there any tendencies in my life that might reflect some of, the, some of these tendencies of this unjust judge? And so, but also then there is this persistent widow. Now, to be a widow in this culture was very common, and young girls were often married from the ages of 12 or 13, and so to lose a husband 
with no sons, no inheritance, land or money, or to fall or have any plans to fall back on would be devastating. In fact, widows and orphans could sometimes be the same person. Widows, as you look throughout Scripture, they hold, they hold a really dear place in the heart of God and his people. As much of his anger, God's anger towards people, uh, specifically his people, comes from neglecting the widow and the orphan. There was no welfare plans in place, and widows might have had to sell themselves into slavery in order to even eat. And so this theme for caring for widows is heavily emphasized in both the Old and the New Testament. And so just listen to, listen to some of these passages, two, just two passages real quickly, to get a sense of the importance here. In Malachi 3.5, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, we find God saying this to his people, So I will come to put you on trial. There's the judge, right? I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So included in there, there's a lot in there. I wish we could spend time talking about all that. But included in there was the oppression of widows and the fatherlessness. And he says, you know, when you do this, you're not fearing God. There's this connection between loving God and truly loving our neighbor. And so hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, this is coming to God's people saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to put you on trial because you have neglected the widow and the fatherless. Not only that, Jesus' baby brother James, in his letter in the New Testament writes, Religion that God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Very important Old Testament, New Testament passages of the importance of widows and caring for them. And so it's important to realize, too, that we have this mandate still today. We are still called to do this. Now, many times in our culture, and certainly not in all cases, but in, in a lot of ways, widows are often better off in our culture today here in the West and than they were when they would be back then. And circumstances are much different today than they were then. But we at least need to see that the widow in this parable represents not only widows, but anyone who has been wronged, not given justice, neglected, abused, and possess no power to change things in and of their own strength. You see, this widow says, grant me justice against my adversary. Notice she's asking for the bare minimum, justice, to get what is owed to her. Perhaps she had something that was stolen or somebody owed her a debt. We don't know. But in any case, she isn't asking for the death penalty. She's not asking for all of the adversary's belongings or anything like that. She's simply asking for justice. She's asking to be made whole for things to be set right. Now, it says that this widow kept coming to this judge with a plea, and I envision her in her persistence showing up at his office, chasing him down as he hops onto his donkey to head home for the day, cutting him off in the alleys, waving him down, being the one who's willing to wait for three hours in order to see him. She's probably knocking on the courtroom door. She is leaving notes on his window. And, and why? Again, because she has no power to structurally change things. She has no money to hire representation. She has no parents to bail her out. She has no kids to help her out. She has no relational connections in the justice system. All she has is persistence, endurance, and the refusal to quit in the midst of difficulty. And here, it is enough. And that's the point Jesus wants to make. 
Now the judge who is neither who neither cares about God or people is the one who in the end gives up. He gives in because of her persistence. He says in the text it says because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Now, it's not that it's not that he's scared that she's going to come beat him. Uh, that, that the translation of come and attack me is a, is a little off and a little too extreme, I guess. The phrase in the Greek here literally means to give someone a, a black eye, but it's used to convey a sense of defeat, humiliation, or, and being worn down. It's not really to convey physical attack, I don't think. It's more of a, it's more of a metaphor for being worn down, humiliated, and defeated. So the widow, if she does not give up, would be humiliating the judge publicly, and he cannot have that. So justice here is selfishly motivated, but why would the widow care? She finally is made whole, and it's based on her persistence. And so the parable comes to a close, and Jesus elaborates on what we ought to do with this short, simple, yet profound story. And I love how Luke opens Jesus' explanation of what we ought to do with this. He refers not simply to Jesus by name, but he says, Lord. He says, the Lord says. And so when we hear this, we are to automatically think the true ruler, the true judge of judges, the Lord. We're already be thinking about Jesus as the ultimate judge here. So Jesus asks two rhetorical questions that can give us sort of a headache. The first question he asks after he closes the parable is, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? And number two, will he keep putting them off? He answers the question by saying, I tell you, he will see to it that they get justice and quickly. And he ends with a final question that moves us back to self-reflection. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Notice something here. Jesus tells us about God's character and then challenges the reader to examine himself. So, how do we respond? I think we can respond with one question and one imperative. One question about what we believe and one imperative about what we ought to do. So the first thing, let's, let's, let's address a question here that I think surfaces out of this parable. We've got to wrestle with this question. What do I believe about God's character? What do I believe about God's character? A.W. Tozer is famous for saying that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about who we are. And he believes that a lot of our problems and misconceptions about faith and life stem from a wrong perception of who God is. And I think he's probably right. So we have to ask, what do I believe about God's character? The parable is meant to contrast the character of God and the character of, of this unjust judge. And Jesus is essentially saying here, if an unjust, indifferent, and godless judge could give justice out of, after being pestered so much, how much more will God give justice, being that he is just, loving, caring, and faithful to his people and to his promises? So what, God, what Jesus is doing here is he wants to say God is nothing like that judge, so how much more would he, will he be willing to be involved? How much more does he care? How much more does he promote and give justice? And so the question for us is, do I believe that God is just? 
Do I believe that God is loving, caring, and committed to his people? Do I believe that he will make things right? Do I believe that he will do so quickly, as the text says? I mean, after all, it's been 2,000 years, and the world seems to be tearing, up, tearing apart at the seams right now. And so did Jesus miss the bus for his return to earth? Is he late? Did he sleep in? So you immediately sense the tension that arises out of this parable because we look around and things seem to be falling apart and then we look within ourselves and we feel that we are somehow disconnected from being made whole, the things that we struggle with and deal with in our own lives. And we wonder really, if we're being honest, is God really going to show up? You see, our headaches and our heart's confusion come from this passage, especially in verses 7 through 8, because we struggle to see God really bringing his kingdom into life here and now. And so what I want to do is I want us to slow down, back up a second, and realize that there are two ways to read these verses. I'll explain them, and I'll tell you what I think about them. The first way to read it is verse 7 is simply saying, that God will not and has not forgotten his people. And verse 8 says, justice is coming, and when it does, it will be quick. And ultimately, right now, we are in this waiting period, a time of delay. Yet when God does come, when Jesus returns, it'll happen fast. And so this idea of having to be patient and wait on God, and then something happening quickly, they're not really in contradiction. You know, one example of this is um, an Olympic athlete can tell us years in advance, years before competing, that he or she will, will compete in the 100-meter dash. Now, we will wait for years, but when they do compete, it happens quickly. And so the idea is that as we're waiting for God to really set all things right, we're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to be persistent in prayer. But when he comes, Jesus will do his work quickly. So that's one way to read these verses. And it's totally fine. You can totally read the verse that way. Um, the, the, the Greek really allows for that to be the case. But it also allows for another reading. The other way is to really narrow our focus in on this word quickly. Many scholars say that this word would better be interpreted as certainly or surely. The word can be flexible. And so what, what they believe the text is actually saying is that we are dealing with the idea of assurance. This means that what we are dealing with is not pace, but the promised assurance. This text might be saying that God will surely act in his way and in his time. What's the verdict? How do we read this verse? I think both are ultimately true. They do, I think both are true, but the verse can't mean both. And so I lean towards the latter, that we are to look at this passage and that word quickly as certainly or surely, as some translations do render it. Because what we're looking at here is at assurance, not an estimated time of arrival. God will surely put things right. He will. Now, the, the reason why I lean this way is because of the introduction to the parable. You see, the introduction to the parable says that the whole parable is going to be about prayer and not giving up. We only give up when we have lost assurance, when we have lost hope, when we feel like we have lost certainty. Not when things are just taking too long. No, we'll wait for 30 minutes in Starbucks coffee in the coffee line if we know for sure that we're going to be getting that coffee when we get there. No, the issue is not the time it takes, but the assurance and hope we have that it will come. 
And so that's why I think this text is more about certainty that God will show up in the difficult moments in life. And so again, we have to ask about what we believe about the character of God here. Jesus says that we can be certain of God's character, even when our days are uncertain. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? Ask that question in your spirit and wrestle with that. And now this leads us to the imperative, this important instruction that Jesus gives us. And, and so we've asked the question, so what's the imperative? The imperative is this, pray always. Pray always. Now, we might have expected Jesus to say something like that, right? I mean, he's Jesus after all. You know, that's like hearing the, that's like expecting the pastor to open the Bible and tell you to turn to a particular verse. I mean, you, you feel like sometimes things are just going to be said because of who's saying it. Now, we might have expected Jesus to say, go and pray. After all, he's holy and he's perfect. Yet, I think our quick dismissal of prayer is often a result of misunderstanding the nature and the way of prayer. Because if you're anything like me, I used to think about prayer and still struggle sometimes. Um, I used to think about prayer and feel guilty, feel guilty that I didn't do it more. Or when I would do it, I would feel bored or my mind would wander to all these various things. Or I would look at my watch, I would say amen, and then hope something got through to God. And so that's how I used to think about it. I think that's how many of us think about it. When we hear the idea of pray always, we think, oh, prayer, I've heard that before. Oh, prayer, I've, I've tried that before. Or we say things like prayer doesn't work. And all of these things really surface, bring to the surface a misunderstanding about the nature of prayer. Now, one day I will do an entire series on prayer, an entire series. I'm, I'm talking weeks, maybe months on the nature of prayer. And I can't wait to get there. But here I will just make some brief observations on it. The first thing here is that prayer is not about piety, but rather it's about that place where we go to commune with God. You see, when we survey the Bible, prayer is one of the most central and common themes, and especially in the Gospel of Luke and part two of Luke's Gospel, which is the book of Acts. You cannot read the Gospel of Luke and Acts and miss the emphasis on prayer. You know, we find prayer from cover to cover in Luke and in Acts. It is a priority of God's people. In fact, in Acts 2, after the Spirit has been poured out, one of the primary things the church is told to be devoted to is prayer. You know, when we look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we find that Jesus prayed intensely when he was facing difficulty. We, we find that before he made monumental decisions about who would follow him, he spent all night praying. When he was without food and being faced with temptation, he was praying. When there was people who were suffering from spiritual oppression or physical ailments. The context of prayer was the space where God chose to move and heal. And so prayer is very, very important here. And so the disciples, what you find, were so attracted to the life of Jesus, but not simply because of the miracles, but by what, the, what one author calls the graciousness of Jesus's soul. There was something about the posture and way of Jesus that was so attractive to them, to the disciples, that they wanted it. Jesus' peacefulness, his contentment, his way of being in the world, and his way of interacting with people was so profound that the disciples wanted in on it. So they asked him, or more demanded him, teach us to pray. Notice that the disciples didn't ask, Lord, would you teach us to call down fire from heaven? Lord, would you teach us to debate the Pharisees or anything like that. 
they were most interested in Jesus's prayer life because they realized that the prayer life of Jesus informed the graciousness of his soul. In response, Jesus taught them the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus teaches that the way to this graciously lived life with an ever-flowing trust in God only comes out of prayer, not out of piety, out of prayer. You become like who you hang out with. I used to hear that all the time growing up, and I, and I think it's true. You know, I used to hear one of my one of my baseball coaches trying to keep us in line said, "Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future," and stuff like that. You know, you've all heard that stuff. But I think there's this true element that when we situate ourselves with certain people, we become like them. You become like who you hang out with, and so when we are praying, we are we are seeking to hang out with God a little bit. We are communing with the most gracious, loving, committed, and life giving person, and so. If we're going to become like who we're hanging out with and we're hanging out with God, we should expect as we grow to become more gracious, loving, committed, and a life-giving person. There should be a graciousness about our souls as well. And I think many of our problems could be solved not by answers but by postures of living, a, a, a different tone in our lives, not feeling the need to always defend myself, not feeling the need to react to that post on, the, on Facebook or not, the, not to have the need to get angry about that article that really was of little consequence in my day-to-day life. You see, prayer puts our hearts and our minds in touch with God. And when we are in deep communion with someone, we are free to be honest and open and vulnerable. And so prayer is that space where we commune with, commune with God and we should be free. We should feel free about it. We are to, I think as C.S. Lewis says perfectly, we are to pray what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Or as another author put it, when you pray, lift up what's inside you at that moment. If you're bored, lift up that boredom. If you're angry, lift up that anger. If you are sexually obsessed, lift up those desires. If you are tired, lift up the tiredness and so on. You see, we tend to think of prayer as the place where I must be good, but that's not it. We're to be in communion with God. Now, at this point, people say, yes, but you must be reverent. After all, the judge didn't fear God. True. Granted, I give you that. We must be reverent in prayer. Jesus displays that in the Lord's Prayer. Absolutely. We must be reverent, but we can also be honest and reverent at the same time. In fact, I argue that to not be honest with God is actually to be irreverent towards God. Use prayer for what it's intended to be, the space where we commune with God and get to know God. And secondly, prayer increases in our lives as we become more aware of our need of need for God on a daily basis. You know, when we look to the parable, the widow in this story, she had no power of her own. We've already discussed that. She had to cry out day and night to this unjust judge precisely because she had no other option. She had great need, and it resulted in this deep persistence a lack of prayer, and that crying out day and night that she was doing, that's to reflect prayer. That's what that's about. And so a lack of prayer often reveals a couple of things. It either it either reveals pride, where we are either self-filled and consumed and we feel like we don't need God, or we mistake what God's been up to in our lives for our works, and we become kind of puffed up and say, yeah, I think I got this thing. Or we are in such deep despair that we think prayer is useless. Now to move past this pride, 
I think it begins with honest prayer and an awareness of need. We've got to be broken of that. If we want to deal with the pride in our lives, we got to get into a space of prayer and allow God to expose what's in us and to move past the idea that prayer is useless. We need to become aware that prayer is that space where we can gain clarity and steadiness in our hearts. Because my question to you is, how is not praying going for you? Are you steady? Is your heart content? Do you feel free? So I think in both cases, whether we are experiencing pride or despair, it comes back to our awareness of our need for God. And so this imperative to pray always. You know, Paul says this in Philippians and Thessalonians, all over the New Testament. The imperative is to pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to be praying all the time, like forgetting work, forgetting family, and just focusing time in prayer. That's not what it's saying. It's fundamentally about having an ongoing awareness of God that spurs on a regular rhythm of conversations with God throughout our days. It's driving in the car and and throwing up that thought in your mind to God and saying, oh, would you help me wrestle with that? It's as you walk into work and you see things are chaotic, you genuinely say, God, would you empower me to, to walk through this today? It's watching the news and saying, God, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? It's having that ongoing dialogue with God, that awareness of God's presence is always with you. And so we need to be aware of our need because that will increase our vitality in prayer. And so lastly, prayer is the evidence of faithfulness, especially in difficult days. In verse 8, we find the strange way to end this parable when Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, I thought this was about prayer. Now it's about faith. What's going on here? Well, in verse 8, faith, the word faith there is actually better rendered faithfulness not just faith. Because when we think about faith, we think about cognitive belief. We think, oh, I mentally assent to this. But no, this word is faithfulness. It's this ongoing active trust, leaning your full weight onto something. And so, whereas the disciples began in Luke 17 by questioning Jesus, Jesus actually makes the entire parable about questioning their faithfulness in a time of delayed results, in a time of waiting so, for example, if, if we open up this larger context, usually I talk about context up front, but I think I needed to wait until now. The larger context of this passage is about longing for God to set things right in the world and then waiting for him to do it. You know, if we go back to Luke 17, verses 20 through 25, we find this. It says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, here he is. Don't go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus, in the same breath, says that the kingdom of God is here and it's now, but there's a portion of it that's still yet to come. It hasn't been fully brought into reality yet, and that will come when he returns. But he says here, he says, you're going to have to wait. 
You see, Jesus offers this parable of the unjust judge and the widow right after this text, which means that he is specifically narrowing in on the fact that we will long to see Jesus, but there will be a time where we're going to have to wait. I used to be discouraged at this, but lately I've become thankful that Scripture is just simply honest with me. Even if it's a tough truth, like you're going to want something and it's not going to happen right away. I need those honest truths, and it tells me I can trust Scripture. And so this text primarily is coming off the hills of dealing with the last days. And so the last days, just so we're clear, they began when Jesus resurrected. This is not some like we're waiting for the last days to begin or, you know, we have been in what the Bible would call the last days. The last age, perhaps, is a better way of saying it um, since Jesus' resurrection. And so that's what this text is 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 on about, about waiting for that, because what it tells us is that God's people are going to be in difficult situations, and we're going to long for justice. And he's saying, wait. But these things are also true in our personal lives. And so what we are dealing with here is what do we do while we wait? What does it look like for Jesus to find faith? Well, he tells us in verse one, pray always and don't give up. And when we pray, especially in difficulty, we are to enter into that space seeking to know God's character. Because as Ron Rollheiser writes, to enter the darkness, to go into the desert, to face your demons, you must first have the assurance that you will be held by God. So it's no accident that Jesus ends the parable with making us question God's character and then challenging us to evaluate our faithfulness. Because this assurance that we crave only comes through contemplating our beliefs about God and resolving whether or not we not only believe in God, but whether or not we're going to believe God. That's important. It's not just that we believe in God, but what we believe about God and whether or not we believe God. When we focus on God's character in the midst of crisis, we are acting like children who crawl into the lap of their mother or father when they are scared. You see, there was one time where there was this massive storm that blew through the valley, and it scared Cove and Maggie. This is a couple of years ago. And they came downstairs, and they hopped into my lap on the couch. And it just reminded me of something. It reminded me that what they were looking for was not answers. It was comfort when they were scared. When they perceived difficulty, when they perceived danger, they climbed up into my lap. Me providing all of the answers wouldn't have done anything. Well, let me just tell you about how fast the storms move and the types of storms it is. Hey, this is not torn. there's not going to be a tornado because we live here. I could have given them all the facts, but they didn't want that. They didn't want facts. They wanted to be comforted by the presence of their dad. And it's like prayer is like that. It's as again, Rollheiser says, it's crawling into the lap of our parent. It is the presence of the parent that begins to subside the fear, not altering the situation all the time, right? You know, COVID Maggie sitting in my lap didn't change the fact that it was storming outside, but it did decrease their fear and bring them to a place of peace. Well, this all leads us to the question, how do we pray? Guys, I wish I could spend more time on that. I really do. A couple of things I'm just going to tell you that have been helpful for me. 
and I'm not perfect at this. I'm still struggling here a lot right along with you. But let's go back to this text. Be persistent and don't give up. That's the starting place. Don't give in and don't give up trying to fight for that space of prayer. And we do this by a couple of things that some people have told me that's really been helpful. First, we need to be eliminating distractions. And I think we can all figure out what those are in our lives. Eliminating distractions. Normalizing a time of stillness in your daily life. And when you do this, when you begin to sit still, you're going to notice you get antsy real easy. But one of my mentors told me, when you notice that, recognize that as anxiety and angst being detoxed from your body. Push through it. Don't give in. Be persistent. And then practicing humble honesty as we speak and listen to God. So eliminating distractions, normalizing a time of stillness, and practicing humble honesty as we speak and listen to God. Start there and start small and watch your prayer life grow. It'll grow deep roots, and you'll start noticing this ongoing awareness. And so whatever difficulty you are facing, Jesus is encouraging us here. Be like the widow. Be like the widow. So as you seek to integrate this parable, I pray you get to know God's character. And as you face uncertainty, which we are all facing right now, in what seems like a time of delay, remain faithful. Be persistent and intentional with prayer. Like the widow, we are often powerless. Yet unlike the widow, we cry out to a loving God who hears us and who will strengthen us as we commune with him in the space of prayer. The mark of faithfulness is a consistent, persistent, and ongoing prayer life. Let's start there and see where that takes us. God bless you all this week, and, I, and I be, I'm going to be praying for you as you seek to integrate this into your life. Well, we hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. If you have any questions, needs, or want to share about what God is up to in your life with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. Also, feel free to share, review, and rate this podcast, and be sure to subscribe with us on iTunes to keep up. We look forward to connecting with you.